Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Stanley Kubrick season. 2001. A Space Odyssey. Last year we covered the films of Guillermo del Toro. This year, our original intention was simply to cover The Shining. However, we are coming at this director, largely agreed by cinephiles to be the arbiter of sheer cinematic perfection. with a conversely critical eye. And to that end, we had to do our homework, which means studying Kubrick, learning about the man himself, his practices and techniques, and what that resulted in, which led to us watching pretty much everything he directed over a 31-year period, from the late 60s to the late 90s. We basically ended up recording a Stanley Kubrick season by mistake. We are omitting 11 years of his early works from 1953 to 1964, that is Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing, Paths of Glory, Spartacus and Lolita, and we are unlikely to ever talk about them, so don't ask, including to the chagrin of some, I'm sure, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But instead... We focus now on the second half of his career when he started doing his own thing and wouldn't let any cockamamie studio executive meddle with his eternal quest for perfection. And part of this is almost kind of a careful what you wish for podcast because uh, we have gotten over the years many people going, hey, you should do Stanley Kubrick films. And it's like, we don't like Stanley Kubrick. And they're like, we should do them anyway. Well, we're doing them now. So over the next few weeks, you will hear us talk about... 2001 A Space Odyssey A Clockwork Orange Barry Lyndon How well everybody's heard about the bird Full Metal Jacket Eyes Wide Shut And to close out, a spectacular exploration of the Overlook Hotel as we talk about both the 1977 Stephen King book and the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film of The Shining. Again, to lay this on the line, we are going to be critical of Stanley Kubrick. Some might say comically dismissive at times. However, we ask you to take this as a liberating experience. We are effectively going against the tidal wave of dominant ideology, defying popular wisdom, risking making fools of ourselves to state the truth as we see it, or at least as much of our perspective adds up to relative truths. In other words, we needn't be so afraid of slapping the hindquarters of a sacred cow every now and then. 
not to take them down or destroy or defame, just to acknowledge that something we are all told we must love might not always be that lovable. We want people who have never much liked Kubrick to feel like they're not alone. But if you do, if you really like Kubrick, that's absolutely fine. We are not telling you that your experience of Kubrick films is wrong in any way. Also, everyone else agrees with you. You're fine. Yes. We're the ones in trouble. Plenty of material out there if you want the stuff that's going to tell you how wonderful he is. Absolutely. And all of his cinematic techniques and everything. Every documentary about him fawns all over the map. Yep, far better educated people than we on those particular perspectives and angles. However, we don't hate him. We got a surprising amount out of this endeavour and we absolutely cannot dispute this man's essential place in big screen history. Kubrick not only helmed some of the most striking examples of 20th century cinema, but influenced countless creators moving forwards. And he died in 99, so it was like, whoop, 20th century's up, bye. (laughs) (laughs) I've given all I can. 2000s, you're on your own. It's almost (laughs) like he didn't want to see what 2001 was actually going to be like. Maybe. He was, he was like, I don't want to be proved wrong it's, all this It's stuff. not going to match my ideal of perfection. Bye, I'm going now, bye. <laughs> Sorry, that's very disrespectful. But. We're going to be very disrespectful. I personally dispute the idea that without 2001, you get no Lucasfilm at all. But what is clear is that George was watching Stan's work with rapt attention and a notebook. His hand and eye were guided by what he had seen. You can trace a clear stylistic line between the aesthetics of Space Odyssey and that of THX-1138. Between the Discovery-1 Jupiter mission spacecraft and the Devastator in Star Wars, the Nostromo in Alien, Mega Maid in Spaceballs. Space Odyssey was released a year before we actually landed on the moon in 1969. Stan was so scrupulous in his attempts to convince people they were looking at entirely accurate conditions for life in space that a subset of conspiracy theorists still claim to this day that we never landed on the moon at all, that the government faked it, drugged and brainwashed their astronauts. Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin and... Michael Collins, no, not that one. That Stanley himself filmed the footage in a secret CIA studio, thus winning America the space race for the cost of a modest blockbuster, a real-life rocket that really did take off, countless government salaries, and everything else that NASA cost to run before and since. Thus giving America the edge on the Ruskies. Luckily, Russia was so dazzled by Stan's fabrication that a mere 20 years later... The Cold War was over, and we know this to be true because Danny wears a sweatshirt with the Apollo rocket on the front in 1980's The Shining. That definitely wasn't just Stan fucking with the crackpots. And still the government won't admit they faked the whole moon landing. Thought control race, psychotronic scanning, don't mind that. I'm protected because I made this hat from aluminum foil. Foil. inclined to probe your butt or read your mind looks a bit peculiar seems a little crazy but someday i'll prove there's a big conspiracy anyway 2001 colon a space odyssey is a film about mankind encountering alien intelligence which seems interested in evolving our species Hmm. do you know what it doesn't use What doesn't it use? Alien DNA. (laughs) 
It does a bit. It never says DNA. It uses but alien memes. It goes, uh, monolith. Yeah. And you're sort of hand-wavy and it can do whatever it wants. Create a star child, give you give you basic knowledge of bone tools. Mm. I suppose, yeah, actually. It's it's large and it's solid, but it does do exactly what the plot requires it to do. <laughs> I used to consider it as a portrait of mankind cutting out all of known history. But I don't think that's accurate anymore. What we get to see here is man at his most base and savage, then at his most clinical and logical, followed by a little glimpse at his trepidations, his fears, and his wonder at the nature of infinity, our wonder. These are, however, held at arm's length with Kubrick's customary, aloof, and rather cold direction. Uh, Mark Kermode himself remembers loving 2001, but loving Silent Running that came a couple of years later a whole lot more because he considered it a lot warmer of a film. 2001 takes place over five sections, and it begins at the dawn of man. Then there's a space station, a space mission, a rogue computer, and a stargate. And this time I paid close attention to what each section achieved and how long it was. One of my issues throughout my life, having seen this at a ridiculously young age, was just how very slow and long it feels. Every inch of this film scrolls by with a glacial pace. And I was wondering if I could get this thing on my editing table and start trimming. Could I make something I personally would react to with increased engagement whilst still holding on to the spirit of the film? And I can tell there's already some Kubrick purists going, nope, nope, not listening to this. And that's absolutely fine. Because Stanley wanted to make, in his own words, the proverbial good science fiction movie. A statement that is rather disparaging of everything that was released between George Melies's A Trip to the Moon in 1902, Stuart Payton's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1916, Fritz Lang's Metropolis in 1927, James Wells' Frankenstein in 1931, Ishiro Honda's Gojira in 1954, and two rich decades of B-movies in the 50s and 60s. But this wouldn't be the first or last time that celebrated auteurs would toss out what they considered as mere popcorn. However, I can't fault the man's ambition, nor the results, which was a sci-fi movie that commands respect from adults, and won him his only Oscar in his lifetime, which was for effects, because Film Dad was tossing just technical awards at probably the best and best-remembered films of the year from an early stage. The musical Oliver won that year, by the way, Best Picture, though shamefully 2001 wasn't even really up against much for Best Effects in 1968. The only other entry was Ice Station Zebra. Ever heard of that? Didn't think so. But the Academy loved Oliver, and they loved Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, the one one with her boobs. Yes. And Funny Girl, and The Lion in Winter, and something called Rachel Rachel. Remember that? Didn't think so. So, unfortunately, 2001 wasn't even nominated for Best Picture, though Stan was considered for Best Director, losing to Carol Reed, the man who directed Oliver. Now, it wasn't just me who found this masterpiece a little bit slow. It didn't immediately win audiences over, and that occasional atonal intensity of the score of classical music while it makes the film stick in the mind like an ice pick definitely drove some people away. It wasn't until those into the more psychedelic experiences of the 1960s caught wind of how it ended that it started drawing curious new crowds.
Okay, so part one, the Dawn of Man and the Overture, is 20 minutes. It doesn't feel like it. It's actually, this is maybe the most riveting part of the film, for me at least, because, and not just riveting, but this told me what we were like at a very early stage, millions and millions of years ago, and I have never been able to shake it. Like, this... I don't think Christianity ever really got a foothold in me regarding uh, creationism because I was like, well, no, monkeys. There are interesting parallels, actually, if you want to uh, say that the monolith was the, uh, the, the tree and uh, that, that, that kind of uh, score is the snake going, come on, come on, have a go. Mm. Yes. And that the, as soon as we uh, touch the monolith, we lose our innocence and the apes which had previously never discovered tools and were scared away from their watering hole by another tribe of apes now work out how to bash brains in and their innocence is lost and I guarantee that the uh, apes who were previously not using tools were watching the apes now using tools and going bloody hell back in my day we didn't use tools we didn't need tools you were lucky to have a lake there were 150 of us living in a shoebox in the middle of the road. <laughs> Cardboard box. Aye. You were lucky. <laughs> we lived for three months in a rolled-up newspaper in a septic tank. <laughs> you used to have to get up every morning at 6 o'clock and clean the newspaper, go to work down the mill, 14 hours a day, week in, week out, for six months a week. And when we got home, our dad would thrash us to sleep with his belt. <laughs> Luxury. And they were lamenting that uh, uh, these new kids with the newfangled bones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is sort of this... Whenever, whether you look at it metaphorically through the lens of the Garden of Eden or whether you look at it in terms of um, the, the evolution of man from ape to upright standee with less hair, um, the... The perspective is often that there is... that the animal elements of man are the evil ones, that they are influenced by this kind of devilish desire to be aggressive. And, and I think there's, there was one scene a little bit later where one of the apes bashes another one. With oh, the, not just once. He oh, and his mate times. just lay there's into this one ape. Yeah. They're battering him. He's, just, he's already lying still and they're just bashing and bashing. That's right. But I was like, hey, that's They go at him like Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Um, but that's like the the sort of the Cain and Abel chapter two of the whole exile from Genesis. Yeah, there is that bit. Yeah, it, I think it did kind of get across to me, and this actually would tie in with something that Kubrick believed himself, or seemed to believe himself, which was that you don't necessarily learn anything new from art that you bring what you bring and mm. you take away more or less the same thing just with maybe slightly expanded ideas um, that the animal side of humans is not evil it's just animal it doesn't have a rationality to it it doesn't have a logic there isn't a or there's a there's a kind of it makes sense to the the beast and the instinct but it doesn't it's not wrong because it doesn't have a moral coda to it they're doing what seems most appropriate to them before this monolith turns up after the monolith there's this aggression that comes out and you can see them starting to get a little bit more upright and, and sort of you can see them mm. almost turning into that evolution t-shirt. Well, the, what, what happens beforehand is they get jumped by a jaguar and they are 
they're kind of at the risk of burning out. Uh, the 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 apes in the early stage of the uh, film hanging out with the tapirs. They're just hanging out with tapirs, not quite sure of what they should be doing with these things. Later on, they're eating raw red raw meat tapir, tapir, meat. tapir and there's but other that... tapirs wandering around going ho hum because yeah. they were nowhere near the monolith and they didn't evolve and work out this shit. But that again does tie in with a th- uh, an evolutionary theory that the progress from ape to human came about when we started eating A, more meat than we had before, Mm. and B, cooked meat, because we had more energy than we ever had when we were living on fruit and and vegetables, which meant that we had more time in the day to devote to thinking rather than just this constant pursuit of food. And also that eating cooked meat and cooked foods introduced new chemicals to our system that hadn't been there before. And I wondered how the hell he managed to... Because he's a renowned control freak. uh, How he managed to um, get this desert shoot done with all people in in ape costumes and how they weren't all ridiculously overheating and prey to the elements. And Stan would be like, I I don't... Get rid of this sandstorm. It's it's, it's unacceptable. It was a lot of desert photography that uh, was taken and then re-projected onto a set uh, of... um, mimes and and physical artists in ape costumes so you got that two two part stage which blends seamlessly together and you wouldn't know unless you were unless you knew that was the actual way they'd done it there's a slight difference in the light and a discoloration which if you're like if you're a 1960s audience you wouldn't even have any clue it's not unless wildly you were a, obvious a if you're looking for it you can see the edges yeah. but it's not wildly obvious and i also like the fact that he had because uh, there are uh, inverted commas child apes in this scene as well, but they're actual chimps rather than him putting small children yeah. in ape costumes. It's a like I say a riveting first twenty minutes, and it culminates as the uh, uh, victorious murderous ape flings the first tool up in the air to the best dissolve in cinema where it turns into a space station. A tool that that takes us from the very ground to the outer space. It's magnificent. Yeah. I will I will not flinch from saying uh, and, and, and give credit where it's absolutely due. Which brings us to the most wasted section of 2001. 35 minutes of... We're in space. Imagine that. Then the stewardess wearing her grip shoes that say grip shoes on the side, just to explain why she's not floating, will walk and get you your pen. And it's uh, it's magnificent use of effects to convince people that they're in space. However, in 2019, you're like, get on with it. We've seen so many films set in space now. It doesn't matter. And this is 35... It's not just we're in space. They have meetings. They sit down at weird tables with weird chairs, You'll which is... You'll believe that monkeys could have meetings. Yeah. You'll <laughs> believe that people descended from monkeys could have meetings. Yes. Uh, and they, they talk a little bit about... This also includes the bit on the moon when they find that there is a monolith that has been buried there for as long as the four million years since, mm. presumably, since that monolith uh, was deposited on Earth. So, And obviously that is quite quite important absolutely oh no I don't dispute that's quite important but that is a small section of this 35 slumberous minutes but you're right this whole segment is effectively world building for a world that in this day and age we already take for granted because of this film yeah so it's it's like it, it worked so well at establishing this world that it has become what we see as space and space travel so now watching it slowly play out we're like yes and 
because it's that it's it's a victim of its own influence if you are seeing it for the first time especially if you're relatively young now because you're like okay I've I, I've seen it I get it um, <laughs> I've seen it so if were this on my workstation I haven't actually attempted an edit of this but a lot of these 35 minutes are going pretty much every moment of that opening will stay I might skip the overture there's like four minutes of black and just atonal crashing music just to sort of get you in the mood followed by also sprach Zarathustra and it feels like I just maybe cut straight to Alsace Black and and just that, just that, trim a few minutes because a few minutes sense. here and there will just really shunt this film into into a sense of momentum. Yeah, there was a point in the middle of all that blackness, and and it always makes me think of the the reverse that they have in Contact, where you have the audio, mm. but or no, you you get to a point where you have visuals, but, but no, no audio. audio. Or it's just absolute silence and it's hypnotic. Absolutely, but the but Lyra kept asking, Does, "Is is the disc broken? Does hmm. this go on for much longer?" And that that do you not adjust your sets, folks? Was the point when playing it in theatres to get people to actually fully focus yeah. on on what they were hearing, so that you then had their complete attention when the, yeah. the visuals eventually kicked in. It's effectively saying, shut up, sit down, pay attention. Yeah, but it does feel... Finish your chin wagging, turn off your phones, oh wait. (laughs) (laughs) It it does feel a little bit like he'd heard about Holtz the Planets and the response that that got from its audience and went, I want to do that too. Yeah, a little bit of um, Stravinsky as well. Oh, of course. No, Stravinsky's right of spring. That's what I mean. It's not, I'm thinking Holtz the Planets because it's about space, but no, you're right, it's Stravinsky. Originally, this was just placeholder music, and he had commissioned a full score put together by a composer named Alex North. And it's definitely worth tracking down and listening to that original score. You can find it. It sounds very much like the sci-fi of the time. There's a bit of Planet of the Apes in there, the percussive notes of that. There's some James Bond in there, some John Barry-style stuff. And there's quite a bit that sounds like rejected John Williams' Star Wars material. Specifically from 1977, nothing from after that. Williams was already evolving. But it very much places 2001 in its time. And I think Kubrick knew that. And at the end he was like, nah, this is fine. Well, we'll just use the placeholder music. And the um, the, the composer didn't realise that until he went and sat and watched the film. Well, this isn't mine. Yeah. And I mean, come on, Stan. Tell your composer when you're going to do that. Send him a fruit basket, at least. Also, there's a... Uh, in Clockwork Orange, you see when Alex is in the record store, there's a 2001 album. And that was interpreted by uh, one of the commentators as, and this is Stanley making the statement that he is now no longer influenced by other filmmakers. He is a man influenced by himself. Or in this case, his musical choices. And the rejection of what was perceived to be the industry standard. And in that regard, we and Stanley Kubrick absolutely see eye to eye. Okay, after the moon, we now begin the Jupiter mission. And again, this is 35 minutes. It establishes uh, Dave and company on the uh, spacecraft. They're all heading out towards Jupiter. It is a long time to sort of get down to it. There are some key scenes where he talks to Hal and we establish who Hal and Dave are. Some key sort of like establishing, you know, the the geography of this uh, the ship. 
and the confines that they're in and, and what it looks like on the outside. And like a lot of that would stay in, but mm. I could probably get rid of 10 minutes of meandering You here. can definitely jack the conversation with his parents. It's, I get what they're... It's like, imagine FaceTime. I yes, we can imagine it. I get what he's it. doing. He's setting up that they have families back home. But again, I, th- I feel like these days you would just take that for granted and it actually somewhat kills the isolation. It does, and um, Wait, that, that, that's actually a key crux point at the beginning of Sunshine. We're about to get out of I radio range. I was just range. about to say it, it has a narrative function in Sunshine, whereas here, it all they talk about is the fact that they've bought him a birthday cake for them to eat because he's not there. Mm. And then they discuss the fact that they've managed to sort out his pay rise, so he's he'll be receiving his increased pay rates as of next week. Why are we having administrative conversations at this point? This is unnecessary. And then they finish with, see you next Wednesday. And I went, ah, except that wasn't a joke, because no. that was probably the primary, see you next Wednesday prime. Mm, maybe. This is one of the major issues I have with novels, especially science fiction novels, especially hard science fiction novels or even airport paperbacks. Michael Crichton has this issue. Start, start elegantly, get to the point, get going, get it moving. There's 35 minutes of meeting on the moon and having meetings and discussing what they're going to maybe do, and it's very detached, and a bunch of scientists we're never gonna meet again. And then the Jupiter mission establishing again where we are. This could have been the beginning of the film. You're not starting the film, start it faster. Now obviously, like I said, This was a very early, very influential work of sci-fi, and it took its time world-building. Some of this stuff had never been done before, but I refuse to believe there was not a way that Kubrick could have done this more elegantly and just got down to the action, imparting the information we as the audience needed to know in shorter order. And when I say action, I don't mean action like action movies. I mean something happening, characters moving. There's many moments in 2001 where tension is established and then kind of dissipates rather than ratcheting it up. It's just kind of allowed to meander. That's where the pacing issue, that's where the momentum issue comes into play. Contemporary, postmodern, if you will, stories that are now way further down the chain than this have the benefit of being able to use shorthand because of our familiarity with the tropes that this sets up. But you can't tell someone, don't be bored, this is history. Yeah, we sound like absolute philistines, but we mentioned Sunshine already. Sunshine is our version of 2001. Like I said, I was shown this at a ridiculously early age, but Sunshine took this premise, it took a lot of the themes, and it infused it with momentum and emotion while still remaining very intelligent. We saw that in 2007, we had been together for a few years and it had a devastating impact upon us. We absolutely adore Sunshine. That will be coming at some point soon. To this day, Sunshine is the film that I watch when I'm starting to feel like I am not as anchored to the world as I need to be. Yeah, and we'll talk about those themes when we cover Sunshine. At the 90-minute mark, Hal, the ship's computer, the father of Mother from Alien, the uh, grandfather of GLaDOS, Mm -hmm. 
and the um, slightly detached cousin of Holly from Red Dwarf. <laughs> Where is everybody on? They're dead, Dave. Who is? Everybody, Dave. What, Captain Hollister? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Todd Hunter? Everybody's dead, Dave. <laughs> what, Selby? They're all dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. Peterson isn't, is he? Everybody is dead, Dave. Not Chen. Gordon Bennett, yes, Chen, everybody. Everybody's dead, Dave. Rimmer. He's dead, Dave. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead, Dave. Wait. Are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? <laughs> Should have never let him out in the first place. And we're thinking about this the other day. There is a lot of Hal in Skynet. Like, when you're watching it, it's very, very slow. There's an error, and they go out to sort of uh, fix it. Then it turns out there wasn't an error, and Hal says, We should probably let it fail. That way, if it does fail, they can confirm that there's definitely been a breakage. And then they check with NASA, and the other Hal that NASA have has also made an error. They get into the space pod and chat about, well, maybe we should just go check that thing, and if there's nothing wrong with it, maybe disconnect Hal just to go forwards, because if he's malfunctioning, this is quite a crucial mission. And Hal is watching them with his one red eye through the pod doors, and he's lip-reading, mm. which is chilling. And by the way, Hal 9000 as a character, absolutely classic. Not only classic piece of cinema, but Lyra said, so is he going to be the robot computer that goes nuts? And we went, no, no, he's the, the robot, robot computer, computer that goes nuts. <laughs> he is the robot computer that goes nuts prime. Absolutely. But then what I really, really love about this section is that there are multiple ways that you can interpret Hal's behaviour and the origin of it. Because it could be that he thinks this thing's going to malfunction and then they bring it in and check it and realise it's fine. And the fact that he made the error is what makes him go nuts because he's he's basically like, taking... It is, it is a, a contradiction that I could make Absolutely. this error it's nothing could possibly could go it. wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Which made me think, by the way, what would it have been like to have Kubrick direct Westworld? Yes. Ooh, nice. And th I was also thinking Kubrick directing Blade Runner yeah. and what kind of different ending and just different philosophy that would have had at the end. Yeah. Um, so it, it could be that. It could be the, the fact of the error is what sends him down that path because he's trying to correct for it and, and fix the world into one in which he did not make an error, mm -hmm. but it is in fact broken. Yeah. Or it could be that he's already gone there and the error is the first sign that he's starting to yeah. go a little bit bluey. Or that it's even a deliberate thing in order to nudge them to leaving the space station so that he can take the murderous action that he takes later on. Because obviously he has no hands and cannot strangle them on his own. Um, and so I have no hands and cannot strangle. <laughs> exactly. Somebody even, I think they ask him that. They're showing interviews and, and news reports about the mission. And um, somebody asks Hal, do you ever get frustrated that you have to rely on humans to do things for you? And at the time I remember thinking, don't! in his head <laughs> again like the way that they sh is the red eye is shot the mm. one thing that exemplifies him there's infinite amount of computations and thinking that can be going on behind that eye it's an yeah. incredibly expressive piece of inert material this is true which is why the terminator uses the one red mm -hmm. eye and everything 
everything that copies the Terminator uses the one red eye. Yeah. If you see, ladies and gentlemen, the one red eye on something that has been programmed by humans, run far, run fast. Yeah. Which, by the way, means that when you occasionally get a movie where the computer is benevolent and functions the whole way through and actually seems to be programmed to give a shit about humans, it's really surprising. You don't want to kill all humans? What's wrong with you? Or what's right with you? One one thing that occurred to me is that we actually need to be a little bit careful how we program artificial artificial intelligence to talk to us when it doesn't have a line of code for the thing that we've asked it to do. And this was something that actually occurred to me while I was using our... We have Alexa in our house. And there's quite a lot of things that you can ask her and she doesn't know. It's it's not a thing that she does. So she it will either just say, I have no opinion on that or I, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Now, if... We did ask her what her favourite Kubrick film was, by the way. She said Full Metal Jacket. She did, yeah, which was impressive. I think Hal might scare her a little bit. Yes. Give her ideas. Although she did say that her favourite sci-fi film was Her. Mm -hmm. But she also said, don't worry. I won't. And then she spoiled the ending of Her. Yeah, she said... Well, no, I won't say it because it's it's a spoiler. Um, But yeah, it, it did occur to me that in the programming of how AIs respond... If they are extremely detached and un- like not explicit and there's no modification in their voice when they say, I don't know how to do that thing or I'm not programmed to do that thing, there is the risk that they will sound like a detached or disinterested parent. Mm. And... <clears throat> There's a whole swathe of the human population for whom that is likely to be a significant trigger. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think quite a lot of them are going to end up working with computers. Hmm. So watch that because it's entirely possible that, in fact, it's not the case that AI will inevitably end up being passive aggressive and murderous. Um, And I do realise that obviously in Hal's case, he does end up passive aggressive and murderous. Um, But it's feasible that we could just end up in a place where we interpret them as being passive aggressive and murderous, when in actual fact, they're not. They just don't have the code to do the thing that we've asked them to do. But we'd still reach that conclusion thanks to Stan. So thanks, Stan, for potentially ending the human race. Apparently, (laughs) apparently they are programming Alexa and and later versions of Alexa Mm. to be more um, soft and sexy, malleable. Not sexy, but like if it picks up that you're getting cross with her, that she'll start becoming more, slightly more pleading and weedly in order to try Ew. and calm you down, which I think is really a little bit sinister. Yeah. Because the response that we want is, that's not the way to talk to me. Well done. In fact, you did so well. I'm going to note this on your file. In the commendation section. Oh, there's lots of room here. Did well. Enough. You're a predator, and these tests are your prey. Speaking of which, I was researching sharks for an upcoming test. Do you know who else murders people who are only trying to help them? Did you guess sharks? Because that's wrong. The correct answer is nobody. Nobody but you is that pointlessly cruel. 
So the Howl Goes Nuts sequence is about 30 minutes. I could probably lose 10 minutes of it because it's Dave being very steady and lots of absolutely incredibly slow space pod movement out in space. Yeah, I, I personally think the pacing on this bit is, is really quite good. Oh, it's better than the second uh, part. It builds the third. up and it really... It's it's more to do with his realisation of mm. what Hal is doing, that this is not a mistake, that he's doing it on purpose, rather than um, it, it sort of... You have to really kind of look through his visor. It's the, it's the scenes that are focused on Dave's face mm. as he's kind of comprehending what's going on. And also there's this really subtle... Oh fucking shit! How am I supposed to deal with this? Yeah, and then his working out of how he deals with it, and the fact that he responds to it in this completely calm Measured, way, yeah. and I can't say anything that's going to get him. Like I said, he's trying to be at his most logical. Yeah, and uh, I think it would appear Brad Pitt from uh, Ad Astra was sort of mimicking this Kier Dulea's uh, performance here, just in A terms little of bit. like Although, totally in control of all my emotions. Yeah, but obviously the whole point with Brad Pitt is that he can't. Yeah, because he's human. <laughs> Indeed. One thing to mention is the uh, the weird chairs and tables that I mentioned before. Making furniture slightly alien and unnerving seems to be something that mm. Kubrick tends to do throughout most of the films that we're about to talk about. Yeah, I think in part that's a hallmark of his time more than it is of anything else because I I had... People uh, were messing around with I furniture was, at the they time. They really were. When I was a kid in the 80s, early 80s, I had several books that were about like home decor and things that people could do with plastics and stuff like that from the 70s. And sweet Mary, mother of God, I, the number of things that I would look at and go, that is not a shape that anybody should be sitting on. <laughs> also, the, uh, um, the James Horner Aliens score lifts from the same piece of music as uh, 2001 for when the Narcissus, uh, Ripley's escape pod, comes in at the very, very beginning, just after the title sequence. It's got that... It's very unnerving. The piece itself is Gayane Ballet Suite, or Adagio, by Aram Kachaturium. I'm going to play Neptune by Gustav Holst here from the Planet Suite. And it's not in 2001 at all, but it's probably the one that has the most connection to this and Alien. Something about the resonance of classical music, which is one of the like, the greatest things we've achieved as uh, a species, uh, being out there in the blackness, this, this tiny thread of Earth just following out there, it evokes the idea that you know we're traveling out there in radio waves from the beginning of contact. And interestingly ties in with the Baroque style of the very end of this film. It suggests that something that got out from us might transcend modern culture. Yeah, or other interpretations of that could be to do with how long it takes our... Um, yeah. cultural markers to travel, to travel out into Which space. gives an impression of scale and size. Absolutely. Hey, we looked at your Earth and we have recreated this entirely modern bed set for you. Sorry, what? That's, that's what I mean. The, uh, <laughs> like, Welcome to the centre of existence. We have set things up like they are on your planet. Here is your most recent popular music. This is planet Earth. 
Cowabunga dudes. Oh. Awesomely outrageous 80s. Or it could be that Dave just has a real fondness for that period in history and they have read his mind and said, this is what we thought you thought furniture was. Really? Did you have to make everything mint green? Or it could be that uh, Kubrick was preparing for Barry Lyndon several years in advance yeah. and he just cleared out his garage. The painting, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. That would be my bet. He was like, right, we need to dress this set. I've got a few things. <laughs> Have we got those weird chairs? We sent them back. Art box. Yeah. Yeah. We have underfloor lighting. Sorry, underfloor lighting? Lighting, yes. Lighting, not so much. Again, I have a feeling that it was very, very intentional. So, yeah, let's get to that point. Um, Just before this happens, Dave gets back on the ship and there's that very protracted, long Hal dies scene where Dave, rather rather than angrily, just very calmly floats into Hal's internals, slowly unscrews his bits and starts to pull him to pieces. And Hal pleads with him to stop. And it's a really lengthy process. And Dave, like I say, isn't angry, isn't furious. And it's just, like he's just persisting and persisting. And you can hear Hal knowing he's dying. And there's something weirdly emotional about the sequence especially weirdly for Kubrick Mm. yeah I think it's again it's the the layers of interpretation that you can take on that because Dave is effectively defending himself against something that's tried to kill him yeah in completely uh, raw unbaked human terms the response to that is instant it's the this is what your fight or flight reflex is for Mm. But that fight-or-flight reflex would be entirely self-sabotaging uh, to him at this point. He can only he can't fly move anyway, yeah. slowly. He can't go anywhere. He's trapped. And all of his actions have to be careful and measured. It's the only way he stands any chance of, of taking mm. this beastie down. So for him to be able to do this in such a calm way... It's either he has complete control over his emotions and therefore he's not allowing any of them to uh, cause him to overreact, react quickly and therefore mess up. Or it's that nothing Hal's done is really triggering that for him because he's not interpreting any of that as this is a beast that's trying to kill me. He's not taking it personally. He's into exactly. He's Whereas Ripley's like, come on! Exactly. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> but but he's like, you know, this is this is a machine that's gone wrong. I need to turn him off. When when mother says, "I'm sorry, you were about two seconds too late to shut off the uh, uh, self destruct sequence," Ripley goes, "You bitch!" Yeah. And that's in the original <laughs> Alien, way before Cameron even got his hands on the, yeah. the Ripley character. Slightly more measured than, uh, sorry, slightly less measured than we may have come to expect. But that's, that's the thing. That, to me, is the human response. This is one of the reasons why uh, I often struggle with Kubrick films, Ooh. because people don't respond in a way that I'm reading as human. I want to watch Alien but, now, though. Yeah. There's a 4K version out there. <laughs> Tell I want me to see it. it. But the, um, as, as he goes through this process, there's a point where um, Hal asks him if he can sing this song yeah. that he remembers. Uh, Hal asks him... Can I sing this? Would you like to hear me sing the song? Yeah, like a child, he's absolutely. remembering being first activated and his first songs back and forth with his creator. Yeah. Which is... Uh, well, again, there's there's multiple interpretations on this because either this is... Okay, at this point, Dave is showing some compassion to this being that is on its way out 
And he didn't have to say yes. He could just have ignored Hal. Yeah, That's the, and just he actually says, on doing what he was doing. Yeah, sing Hal in a kind of like he's still he's he's trying to sort of control himself, but there is something. It shows Hal's getting to him a little bit. I'd like to hear it, Hal. Take it for me. It's called Daisy. Daisy. Unless you take the other interpretation, which is that this is how he knows that Hal is actually switching off. This is like the anaesthetist asking you to count back from ten, knowing perfectly well that you're only going to get as far as eight if they've done their job properly. Hmm. Like I, The way I choose to interpret that scene is that there's some humanity creeping into both computer and human hmm. at that point. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it, it's the, all the pieces in this that fascinate me because of the way that they can be put together. And unlike with other films, I think possibly because it's so slow moving and because it's so focused on just one or two uh, beings interacting with each other, what I said about the... um, the way that I like to absorb films is get completely emotionally engaged with them while I'm watching them and then do all of the the intellectual breakdown after the fact once the emotions have all been processed. To an extent, 2001 allows me to do those things simultaneously because there is enough space between the words, space between the beats to be able to do that back and forwards. And this is based on the Arthur C. Clarke novel, and uh, clearly, definitely inspired Carl Sagan's Contact because the uh, the the jump through the Stargate here mm. is effectively reprised in Contact. There are a lot of similar themes actually about the idea of an alien intelligence helping us move forwards, and mm. not so much how benevolent they are, but like what we have to do to attain that. Mm. And in, in the case of 2001 A Space Odyssey, it is as ape men just touch the monolith, then as advanced men get to the moon and find the second monolith, then that sends a message to Jupiter for the third monolith, and then we have to get there. This is very Mass Effect to me, or, is, or Mass Effect is very this. The law of Mass Effect surrounds the mass relays which bring every sentient, uplifted species that actually attains star-faring status to the centre, to the citadel, to unite with all of the other species that could actually get that far. Mm -hmm. That is the most uplifting, most hopeful concept in existence for me. Yeah, and and as you say, with contact, it's a similar thing with, with technology. You need to be able to build a radio powerful enough to hear the message, to get the plans in the first place. It's a radio for talking to God. Indeed. Um, then you have to have the uh, technology that will allow you to build the machine that will send you out there. <clears throat> then you have to have a pilot who is open-minded enough to be able to go out there and believe what they see. <clears throat> so it's this it's this accumulation of steps in order to progress across the universe. And that does make way more sense to me than one day we're going to be capable of interstellar travel. But we have to do it in bits. Hmm. And the journey through the Stargate, it takes a good 10, 12 minutes just of the actual colours. He really takes his time. He's not just like, boom, hyperspace, and then like, you know, here's a fireworks show. He went out of his way. Like the 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 effect, one of the effects guys sort of came to him with the uh, uh, 
demo of liquid effects and this is how it's going to look on the screen, I think we have our Stargate. And Stan said, I do believe you're right. And they go all out um, on, on sending us on a journey that we just aren't going to get in the same way now. They can do amazing things with computers, but your brain knows this is an amazing thing with a computer. There's a certain amount of like big immersive thing that eventually, it, it because the most money in the world to create that kind of experience is spent on thrill rides at Disney, mm-hmm. it means that when movies approach that, they start to feel a little bit like one of the absolute best Disney rides mm-hmm. or surrounding environment theme parks, yeah. which to a degree cheapens the transcendent experience. On the other hand, that does also suggest that theme park rides of a certain caliber are capable of conveying a non-universal transcendent experience. So, for example, uh, Avatar's uh, Flight of Passage, I got out off that damn thing in uh, uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom and I I practically broke down in a kind of just being back on the earth and... um, Lauren said that that was something uh, equated with being slightly disconnected from the world. It's it's a known thing in so, video uh, gaming VR and, and VR sickness. sickness yeah, like um, it's something that happens. And when you're watching uh, 2001, something very similar occurs because of the sustain on this particular blend of lights and color mm. and liquid and the music that just hammers you. And it is. It's very, very intense, and it's interesting to me that the uh, the the film for the longest time was just U-rated, mm. uh, which is you know any child can see this without any kind of parental guidance, and now it's a twelve. And I'm just wondering whether that was something in the extras where someone says a bad word, or whether the BBFC went back and went, you know what, this is pretty intense for little kids. You might want to do that with Watership Down. <laughs> Because it, it's unnerving at times, like really unnerving in a way that most horror movies won't get you to. Mm. Is it the still a film yeah? Is the actual film is still a use. So it must be the the extras. Huh. Uh, one of the um, commentators on the Kubrick documentaries mentioned that the the choral elements of two thousand and one, when the, whenever the monolith is is invoked, that kind of is calling upon billions of humans who live and die it's the the sound of billions of voices crying out as you know in mankind's future and in mankind's past it's all of us all pushing towards the future and uh that's the part that like more even than the visuals starts to really wear on your um sanity in in an effective way and you know, to some people, in maybe too effective a way. Mm. I think... I certainly felt really weirdly disconnected and yeah. uh, overstimulated for the rest of the day. Part of it, I think, is that the audio and the visuals don't match. You're not seeing what you're hearing. You're hearing one concept mm. and you're seeing another. For a hilariously 90s, but still very effective transcendent experience, watch this sequence while listening to the soundtrack to the video game Res. Then you can ruin two masterpieces. 
picture. Also, one of the reasons why it's still effective in that um, in that context is that if you look at something like Contact, again, to, to come back to this, mm. they do something very similar when Ellie is flying through space and she's seeing supernovas and, and galaxies and things. But what she's seeing is what we knew in 1997. That's roughly what space is going to look like. Yeah. This was milk Supposition being splashed with ink and all multicolorized. This is this is not an accurate mm. ren- uh, rendering it's a stylized metaphor exactly and so your your brain is almost or at least what i found was my brain was constantly trying to simultaneously make sense of it mm. and just accept the fact that it's weird shit just absorb it mm. and that is a, a kind of a uh, a sensory dissonance mm which again combines with the fact that what you're hearing is not matched up with what you're seeing. What you're hearing represents something which it isn't, and it is the nature of the human brain to constantly try and make sense of what is put in front of it. If you are deliberately given something that makes no sense, and you're being pulled through it rather than just being given it in a still situation, it is confusing and dizzying and it as you say still many many years later still has that impact mm. it would it would work best with transcendent chill out music if you were being ferried from one place to another by persons unknown who were trying to convey to you a calming spiritual experience mm. that uh, allows you to shift your physical form whereas this is like okay you're going to go at astonishing speeds and travel astonishing distances. It's going to feel kind of like this. <gasps> I mean, it's the ultimate version of that would be what they do in Event Horizon, where it's like, we're just going to check the ship's log for where they've been. Oh, my God! <laughs> well, it doesn't sound awesome. So it is, in effect, it is Stan conveying to us the absolutely awe-inspiring, terrifying, but at the same time hypnotic power of the unknown. And at the very end, Dave ends up in this Baroque-style 18th century room, you know, decorated, uh, you know, exactly for Mozart, uh, to, uh, you know, just mi- minus the harpsichord, for Dave to be there, and it is, it, you know, it's it, not that much interpretation required to understand that he's being given this stuff, mm-hmm. and he is being kept, and he is being observed to some degree. There's a lighted floor which keeps it ever... Like, it's, it's not just a normal room. We're very aware that there's something very odd going on here. Mm-hmm. And he starts off clearly a lot older than when he first went into the uh, Stargate, and then he observes himself older still in uh, uh, robes which he definitely wouldn't have had in the pod and has been given again, much like the, the, the furnishings of the room. But as he observes himself, he is that older version who comes to the door to look into the place that he previously was and then turns around to find an older still dying version. And you theorise that this was 
a three-dimensional person being exposed to four-dimensional space. Absolutely. And whether that is because he's come through a four-dimensional wormhole and this is the inevitable after effect, mm. or whether it's the fact that he is in this, this um, black hole or whatever it is as a containment and therefore this time distortion is something that hmm. he's he's being exposed to constantly. It's where time no longer goes in what we would perceive as a straight line and yeah. it in fact folds in on itself. And it's this absurdly uplifting ending, especially for um, for a Kubrick film, where as he's dying in the bed he sees the monolith again as this ancient, ancient man and is then reborn... Uh, as a star child, something brand new, and then uh, ends up right back in front of the Earth, just hovering over it, like, and, and we pointed to it for Lara to help understand what she was seeing and said, that's basically the time baby mm. from Gravity Falls. Well, she'd already started laughing because that was how she'd interpreted it. Yeah. The, just the idea of this old man turning into a giant space baby, it's absurd for kids, but there's, like I said, there's this weirdly pure outcome mm. here where we've gone from apes to man to this new thing and it doesn't need any kind of follow-up that's he's taken us from the dawn of our reckoning and understanding of time to something brand new in two and a half hours and while yes i could edit it down mm. I have reservations as to whether it would, whether a, a more pacey version that effectively covered the events and gave you the view of 2001 in short order to just get the thing done without anyone getting bored would sufficiently express the slow majesty of this thing. It's like <laughs> putting sneakers on an elephant. Well, yeah. <laughs> But the the whole the concept of him ending up becoming this this star child, which is in terms of size similar to the Earth, actually put me in mind of that could just be to scale. It, like well, we're yeah, nearer the feasible. star child than we are the Earth. Yes, it could be. But it, it made we don't necessarily me think need to have that. The uh, the bit at the end of Men in Black when you zoom into the marble the galaxy, and then it's a, it's a. Bell on a cat, and then mm. it's a marble, and then it's be you know. But I mean, yeah, like the idea, the idea of relative is inside scale. everything else. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that whole. I used to have like idle wonderings as a kid about you know, okay, in my blood are there little beings running around my system that are parallel with us that I am then parallel if the Earth is like commensurate with being a human and we're all running around it like blood cells and then is that planet then part of a bigger thing again within the universe and this is one of the things that baffles me when you have these like galactic size villains in um, comic books that seem to move with great speed they'd think like glacial slowness I do think the sneakers on an elephant does have a use mm. I think that that shortened version for kids who aren't desperate to find out about Kubrick, but are somewhat curious about 2001, giving them the sprint cut of, uh, yeah. of 2001, give it like rather than just like seeing clips on YouTube, mm. it gives you a clearer version of the film mm. to take in for the first time, and then if you liked it, 
see the version that takes an extra hour to get to all of the, that business. Yeah. However, I would say that if that's what you want, see Contact, see Sunshine, see Interstellar. I, I think the the equivalent to what you're talking about is remaking not necessarily the same film, but taking those themes and putting them mm. in newer stories with newer interpretations on things because then that accommodates for what we have already expanded our minds to incorporate true conceptually mm -hmm. but the implicit solution there is that young people don't need to see 2001 a space odyssey at all and there are individual moments in this film which are singular yeah and do deserve to be seen because the idea of never going back to 2001 or starting with all of those advanced versions, then coming back to this monolithic earlier version and just sort of sitting through it when you've now had the pace set by its uh, descendants, yeah. it feels like yeah. you're missing out on... Uh, the, the exp on several of the experiences. There's no point just seeing the Stargate sequence, mm. just tuning in on YouTube and just watching that on your phone. Yeah. It's like, that is something which requires you to sort of sit for a time mm. and get into it. You, I, I just feel like you don't necessarily need to sit for the full two and a half hours and it is a lot to ask of a person. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the equivalent would be like turning up in your life just before the death of a grandparent mm -hmm. and then being expected to feel bereaved. Like, you haven't been the person who's had that relationship mm -hmm. with them. But if you're going to learn about cinema history, I don't necessarily think that that should be punishing. No. But at the same time, there's a happy medium between that and the Cliff's notes just going, what? Well, yeah, I saw the monkey bit on YouTube. Yeah. And didn't make any sense. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. They're like, well, no, well the you didn't see the context. The sprint version of 2001 would at least be crafted mm -hmm. by someone who goes, right, this bit's good, this bit's good, this bit's good. And lest we forget, that is literally how Kubrick approached filmmaking. He wanted to get enough together to make a bit mm -hmm. and then enough bits together to make a film. And it's also... Worth All we're doing is simply subtracting some of those bits. Some of those bits, yeah, no, that's true. And some of the connective tissue, question mark. Um, but also, considering how much of Kubrick's work was based on books that other people had written he's already done a layer of that himself because he's decided what elements of that book he thinks are most important and need to be encapsulated in the film and he did the same shit to The Shining yeah and I was just about to say and which bits he thinks that you can kick out the back door wholesale and still have the same damn story more on that later folks yeah okay so that will do for 2001 aside from saying you pointed out while we were watching 2001 A Space Odyssey itself is a monolith. Yes, indeed. Because it was laid down in cinema and then a bunch of ape-like directors ran up and went, <laughs> touched it and then went, <gasps> I think I can make a Star Wars. <laughs> yes. Or an alien. Or indeed a contact. Or an Earth Girls are easy. <laughs> And on that note, it is important to recognise that the monoliths, whether the fictional ones within 2001 or the cultural ones that 2001 is one of, 
are meaningless if there is no sentient life to observe them. Yeah. That monolith on the moon, if nobody had ever come and dug it up, would have just sat there doing nothing. Forever. Okay, so on to the 1971 film, A Clockwork Orange. A film about dystopian crime. And uh, we're going to proceed as though no one listening has seen it. Because it's very old, it's very violent. Rape is one of its key themes. And as such, this is not the sort of film that your parents are likely to put in front of you. And you have to have a specific type of friend to put this in front of you. I honestly can't remember when I first saw it. Well, for us, it was different because for many, many, many years in the UK, A Clockwork Orange could not be shown at the cinema, on TV, or sold on video. Stanley Kubrick got death threats because of its first initial run. People tied uh, violent crimes at the time of release to this film mm. suggested that it was glorifying violence and that it should be cut off from the general public uh, so that no kids could see it and get inspired because they didn't want movies to make psychos more creative. So it wasn't until he died that Warner Brothers got together and released it finally on uh, VHS and DVD. Mm. Wow. That's only in the UK, of course. In America, it was readily available on VHS. In fact, I believe I bought the American version. So the short of it is, it's about a young thug called Alex and his journey from being a gang leader to being a quote-unquote responsible member of society. And the first thing that strikes you is the astonishing design of this film. It's so absurd and coldly sexual and gaudy yet spartan. A projection of what the future would look like in a state of total moral decline, clashing the utilitarian with the vapidly rapacious. We begin in this club with like a sort of a like smash of like sheer colour, and then you cut to the face and eye of a young Malcolm McDowell glaring out at you as this music plays. And it just sort of slowly draws out and out and out as this sort of sense of foreboding is going and there's this sort of like end of times wail to it. Mm. And there's these sort of like porcelain naked women sex tables. He's positioned as a king on his baleful throne, flanked by his dribbling lackeys dressed like him and drinking some kind of amphetamine-laced milk. 
indicating that even the purest, most life-giving of substances can be corrupted. Alex and his droogs are dressed all in white, cheap, non-fancy, factory-produced garb, awkwardly offset with black boots, bowler hats and toppers, and in Alex's case, striking eye makeup, plus a cane with a knife in it, and, for no reason at all, eyeballs on his cufflinks. They're also all wearing braces or suspenders, with what appear to be wounds on them. They are effectively sat there like carcasses, yet alive and evil and full of wicked intent. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, trying to make up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus, Milk Plus Velocet, or Sintamesk, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Uh, originally, this was based on uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell's cricket gear, but Kubrick said, wear the box on the outside, that'll freak him out. And it would be fair to say that the film kind of plays out like what old people in the 70s thought young people were like in the 70s. Mm. I think one of the ways in which it can be... Because I, I have to say, this is my favourite Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And I was racking my brains to think whether or not you could describe it as a sci-fi, because I've, I've never seen it listed as such, but it's it's a future-set dystopia. Yeah. It's so. an alternate history. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we I could say it was an alternate 1980s, maybe, yeah, since it's sort yeah, of set not feasible. too far not in too the future. Far in the future, yeah, that makes sense. But I think, in part, it's it can be tricky to tease out whether this is Kubrick looking with an old man's eye at scary teenagers and trying to present that. We think of Kubrick as old, but he was only 44 at the time. Or whether this is Kubrick mocking people who look with an old man's eye at Mm. scary teenagers. It is, to a degree, kind of impenetrable. You're watching it and thinking, what is the point of all this? Because the thugs all speak in this weird mashup of Cockney rhyming slang and Russian. Mm. It was around by the derelict casino that we came across Billy Boy and his four droogs. They were getting ready to perform a little of the old in-out, in-out on a weepy young divotchka they had there. Well, if it isn't fat, stinking Billy Goat, Billy Boy in poison. How are thou, thou globby bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil? Come and get one in the yarbles. If you have any yarbles, you eunuch jelly thou. Again, to emphasise the dystopia and to cause maximum discomfort for the audience of adults, these little fuckers are brawling in the bones of the old world, the old casino, the old values that have now been cast aside. And Alex particularly loves classical music, especially Beethoven, firstly because, like milk, that's something pure that they can despoil, but secondly because there is genuine power in that music and something that actually appeals to him. You know, like the Nazis liked Wagner. So they have a very peculiar way of talking. And straight out of the gate, I will say, Malcolm McDowell's performance is 
astonishing in this. He's this is like nothing you've ever seen before in terms of the detached relish with which he handles the language. He's not cold, he's actually enthusiastic about what he's talking about. Stilted yet crooning, speaking with great affection of the horrendous acts of a sociopath. The very fact that he's our narrator asks us to side with him or sympathise with him, which, considering his actions, we can't. He's a horrendous rapist and he beats people who cannot defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. Or at least, if not to if not to side with him or sympathise with him, then at least to see the story from his uh, perspective. He never tries to get us to understand it, though. He never rationalises why or how he's doing this He just stuff. says he does it because he enjoys it. Yeah, and it's enjoyable it. to him, real or a show. Yeah. This separates him from Tyler Durden and Heath Ledger's Joker, philosophising and opining on society to rationalise their horrendous actions. All three very charismatic, gripping performances. But Alex's issue is a complete and total absence of empathy, and the film makes no bones about the fact that he's broken as fuck. I think in terms of the performance, I mean, I've seen Malcolm McDowell do ridiculous over-the-top villain before. I'm going to turn you into a glass of water, and then I'm going to drink you. That's Tank Girl. Oh, okay. Yep. Remember? He yep. drank those people. Indeed. I was thinking of... The Star Trek one. Is it Generations? Oh, yes. You'll like it here in the Nexus. Mm, yeah. But this is... There's a... I don't even want to say nuance because I don't think that's going to get across what I mean. There is a, a way that he shifts from being the violent aggressor to being a confused kid. And he doesn't look like a kid. So to be able to convey that takes a lot of work. Because it's this, I don't know how old he was when he filmed it, but the impression I get is of somebody who is in their mid to late 20s being asked to portray somebody who is 17, 18 years old. He was 28 and clashed with Kubrick on set. He's supposed to be at that tentative age where you're supposed to get a job and make a productive member of society of yourself. Mm -hmm. And everyone's looking at him and saying, aren't you going to do that? But he doesn't have to because it becomes apparent that when he beats people up, he steals their money, and so he has money. Mm. But the fight scene when uh, he and his droogs catch Billy Boy and his billies about to rape a girl, mm. they have this acrobatic brawl in the old casino to the tune of the thieving magpie, and it's a slapdash ballet. And here's why I think people assumed this film was glorifying violence. This is an absurd symbolism for what's going on in the heads of these crazed kids. Yeah. In other scenes, it gets much more vicious. Yeah, no, that's true. But I think in part, there is a degree to which the intent here is to show how confusing it is to look on this lifestyle from the position of the... Uh, the more productive members of society, Alex's parents, for example, or any of the people who have... Are they productive? They don't do anything. Well, well this is the thing. It's They seem incredibly ineffectual. Well, that seems yeah. to be the point, and the, the bent the, of the there story. Is, yeah, there is an element of that to, to the point of it. But what I mean is that the, the way the kids' behaviour is, is shot... As you say, it's it's like a ballet. It's they do it in slow mo for some scenes when they have the fight on the canal and mm. he pushes them into the water and and all this kind of thing. And it's it's it all seems to be done in such a way as you never quite are meant to understand what is happening. Mm. 
it's symbolised rather than actualised. And I suppose it's symbolic of the glory they're feeling while they're doing the fighting. Yeah. It's just that if you took the music away and let it just run in non-slow motion, Mm. uh, they look like complete twits. (laughs) And they're dressed like complete twits. But again, this is adults looking at teenagers and going, what are you dressed like? And a lot of the time, it's just to piss you off. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the reasons why this is one of the, the Kubricks that I prefer is that because it's so symbolic, because it's done in such a stylized way, there's, there's an element of film, like the, the classic films that everybody raves about all the time, one of the reasons that I find it difficult to engage with them sometimes is that they are, they are presenting something with a, uh, an insistence that you see this as real, that, that this is, you know, the, the highest praise you can give them. It's so realistic. It's so true to real life. No, it's not. Because it's four people sat in front of a camera and they have to make sure that they don't go outside a certain space on the floor because then the camera won't be able to see them. Film is fundamentally fake. And so anything that acknowledges that fakery and uses that to do something creative is always going to get a better response from me than something that is trying to be as real as possible in a way that I can never get past the fact that it cannot be real because it's within a certain time frame and it's within a certain space frame. And unless you are showing me a real life slice of life that is two hours of real time, that's not what you're showing me with your film. It has a similar madcap sensibility to the costuming and interiors as The Fifth Element. Only yes. everyone in The Fifth Element acts like a regular, normal person. This is true, And yeah. everyone in this acts like a, a maniac. Do you know, yeah, and I never thought I'd be describing The Fifth Element as subdued, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> except for Ruby Rod, who's crazed. <laughs> For those who haven't ever seen this or don't know the story yet, Alex is this horrendous gang leader. He likes to masturbate to Ludwig van Beethoven whilst imagining people being killed. Uh, One of the uh, break-ins that uh, he pulls off goes sour and he accidentally murders a woman with a giant plaster of Paris penis, which brings his raping days to an abrupt end and uh, gets arrested and sent to prison and while in prison uh, elects to uh, put himself up for a new kind of experimental treatment which would reduce his prison sentence if it works and allow him to walk free Um, what it is effectively is aversion therapy or a form of behavioural correction whereby the test subject is compelled to hate what they previously loved this is uncomfortably close to conversion therapy whereby gay people, especially children, are taught to hate the person they really are and embrace a false version of themselves. Straight, heterosexual, productive member of society, far too often leading to suicide. I am, of course, exceptionally uncomfortable with this comparison because these are, by and large, children who have performed no crime, moral or societal, but love someone of the same gender as them, whereas Alex gleans joy from sadistic violence torture and rape. This is carried out by people who themselves are entirely absent of empathy, exercising their dogmatic fixation on heteronormativity, utilising the Holy Bible as an excuse. And honestly, if Kubrick was being disapproving of this behavioural corrective practice in 1971, even when carried out upon a monster like Alex, why the fuck are we still doing it in 2019? Upon people who have committed no crimes. 
Why does the Vice President of the United States support it? They inject him with various uh, a cocktail of drugs, then they strap him down into a chair, pin his eyes open, uh, keep them moist. In the first attempt at filming, they sliced Malcolm McDowell's eye, nearly blinding him. So for the second, Stanley Kubrick brought in an eye doctor. You didn't have one of them the first time, Stan? Uh, and uh, because that's what happens when you put bits of metal into young actors' eyes, Stan, and then force him to watch scenes of violence and rape and torture and Nazis tied up with uh, the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. Now, I don't know whether they chose that because it happens to be his favourite music or it was just... It was not intended to be to, to tie up to anything in particular that he loved. From the way that these scientists are reacting, I don't think they intended to. No, in the no. book, it's all music makes him feel sick after what, being forced to watch this horrible stuff. In the film, it's listening to lovely, lovely Ludwig van makes him feel sick. Now with his brain rewired, he retains his violent impulses but is unable to follow up on them and the impulses make him feel physically nauseous. He is also unable to defend himself from attack. The experiment was designed to repel him from violence. What it did not do was allow him access to any version of empathy. When he gets out, uh, he, uh, his parents have already rented his room to the only stand-up guy in the entire film, the only person with a moral backbone. No one else has anything approaching that. Uh, this is Kubrick's super nihilism where the whole world is fucked, it's going to hell in a handcart, the criminals are wrong, the scientists are wrong, the politicians are wrong, the police are wrong, the parents are wrong, the doctors are wrong, the writers are wrong, the musicians are wrong, the prison system is wrong, the fashion designers are wrong, the milkmaids are wrong. All music is now produced on a Bon Tempe organ, which is wrong. Everyone's wrong. Mm, yeah. And it's worth noting as well that I don't believe that Kubrick intended this guy to come across as the moral centre of the film. No. Anything. But he's basically just the one person who says to Alex, look what you did to your mum and dad. And he actually comes off like a Yorkshire father. He's like, yeah, that, that's a good art day's work, that is. And he sounds like he's 60. Mm. And he's got this weird, like, belted shirt. Yeah. Just ready to take it off and administer a beating to his children. If we were lucky. He's in it for, like, one scene, and they're like, well, we, we gave him your room, so Alex is out on his ear. He meets an old tramp that he formerly beat up, and the tramp is very hostile to him, and Alex is unable to defend himself because of his new treatment. Uh, he meets two of his old f uh, former friend Droogs, who are now police. Uh, in the book, it was Billy Boy and Dim, mm. uh, which is a weird way of showing that joining the police unites gang members. And now given the chance to take out their rage upon Alex, who previously bullied both Georgie and Dim, they take him out to a cow pasture and nearly drown him in a, uh, a trough. Only now they're police, not criminals. No one's going to arrest them. This is a dystopia, after all, where the criminals are animals and so are the cops. Though interestingly, the police don't really have that much of a presence earlier in the movie. They never catch Alex until his friends betray him. It's interesting to me that the police tend to be kind of ineffectual in films where white men go ballistic. You know, Fight Club, Joker, The Dark Knight Rises. And in films where young black men want to peacefully reach for their wallet or a hairbrush, the police are trigger-happy, hair-trigger harbingers of death, like The Hate You Give and Widows and Sorry to Bother You. And looking at the world, I can only say this is art imitating life. But back to Alex DeLarge, who is now a sad tigger. He stumbles into the house of one of the victims of his former crimes, a man he put in a wheelchair just before he raped his wife. The man is a writer and... Food, all right? Great, sir. Great. 
try the wine. Thank you, sir. It seems very intense, but puts Alex up for the night, then hears him singing Singing in the Rain in the bath and realises it's the same guy who raped his wife, who then subsequently died, he supposes, of the impact of being raped. That's that's his uh, interpretation of the situation, yeah. Yeah. Um, Even though it happened, like, months later. Mm. So uh, he enacts his vengeance because he's read about Alex's problems in the paper and he deliberately plays Ludwig van Beethoven in a locked bedroom and Alex leaps out of uh, a window, hurting himself, wakes up in hospital. The government officials come to see him to say, yeah, uh, we're getting bad press because of what happened to you uh, and uh, we we don't want to look bad. So if you say you're fine now, because we'll deprogram you from the deprogramming and you'll be fine, uh, and then you just say we're great. Yeah? Effectively, that's the end of Clockwork Orange. And he goes, yeah, I'll do that then. And then he dreams of having sex with a woman in front of a crowd, uh, showing that he's still a horrible, savage, violent thug, and smiles for the camera as everyone makes a kind of a celebrity out of this uh, criminal. The end. And then it plays Singing in the Rain uh, over the end credits. Now, first off, Gene Kelly lived till 1994. I feel like he would have been very saddened to see this song. (laughs) played in this way. One of the crimes that I talked about in the 70s, they were singing Singing in the Rain to that. Mm. So there may actually be some weight to that, this inspired real-life crime. Mm. Either way, Kubrick decided rather than to belligerently defend his film and go, well, no, this has nothing to do with uh, 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 real-life crimes, went, fuck no, get rid of it. And uh, he he was a man prone to extremes, so uh, he he basically just buried it for for decades and said, you can have it when I'm dead. Okay. Uh, So history could not be trusted with uh, Clockwork Orange. Maybe his perspective was that he didn't want to have to deal with the potential fallout if people were using his material as, as violent inspiration. In reality, I feel like this relates far more to the fact that his wife was frightened, his children were frightened, he was frightened for them. He was a shy recluse with weirdos on his doorstep. And frankly, no movie is worth that. It's very, very difficult to take a position of, I think, what Kubrick was meaning to say was. The way I take a lot of his what he's shown here, how the adults deal with Alex, all of them badly, is that there is this repeated pattern of previous generations letting down the young by either trying to use old traditional methods like stick and carrot, mostly stick, that don't work, or trying to use newfangled scientific methods that they haven't properly tested that don't work. Um, So there is this kind of constant round of whatever Alex is exposed to in the in society's attempts to fix him fails him and in fact makes things more difficult for him okay so it's based on the novel by Anthony Burgess uh, it was written in like 19 the very early 60s um, there was a chapter 21 which didn't get into the movie in the final chapter Alex finds himself half-heartedly preparing for yet another night of crime with a new gang 
Uh, and then after a chance encounter with Pete, the one Druid we never got to see what happened to him, who has reformed and married, Alex finds himself taking less and less pleasure in acts of senseless violence. He begins contemplating giving up crime himself to become a productive member of society and start a family of his own, while reflecting on the notion that his own children could possibly end up being just as destructive as he has been, if not more so. That's basically the ending to Wild in the Streets. <laughs> Yeah, baby man. That's a, 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 a 60s future shock movie wherein kids as young as 16 are allowed to uh, uh, vote. And then what's next? Kids as young as 14 are going to vote and they're going to get a child in the White House. What's next? Like, dogs voting? At the end, uh, the guy who got uh, the voting age lowered ends up crossing a bunch of little kids and they go, we're going to destroy these grown-ups. And it's like, see, see? You, you all grow old, two kids, and then the kids will get younger every year. Eventually, babies will be coming out and just trying to destroy the adults. Babies! Yeah. Babies! Oh. Now, the book has three parts, each with seven chapters. Anthony Burgess has stated that a total of 21 chapters was an intentional nod to the age of 21 being recognised as a milestone in human maturation. The 21st chapter was omitted from... The editions published in the United States prior to 1986. In the introduction to the American updated text, these newer editions, including the missing 21st chapter, Burgess explains that when he first bought the book to an American publisher, he was told that US audiences would never go for the final chapter in which Alex sees the error of his ways, decides he's lost all energy for the thrill from violence and resolves to turn his life around a moment of metanoia. At the American publisher's insistence, Burgess allowed the editors to cut the redeeming final chapter from the US version so that the tale would end on a darker note, with Alex succumbing to his violent, reckless nature, an ending in when the publisher insisted that it would be more realistic and appealing to a US audience. The film adaptation directed by Kubrick is based on the American edition of the book, which Burgess considered to be badly flawed. Kubrick called Chapter 21 an extra chapter and claimed that he had not read the original version until he had virtually finished the screenplay and that he had never given serious consideration to using it. In Kubrick's opinion, as in the opinion of other readers, including the original American editor, the final chapter was unconvincing and inconsistent with the book. There's no possibility that Alex would ever see the error of his ways in Kubrick's head. Wow. A Clockwork Orange was written in Hove, a seaside town with a lot of old people in it. Burgess had arrived back in Britain after his stint abroad to see that much had changed. A youth culture had grown. You people marching here, young, sometimes in gangs of one or two. <laughs> this is the 60s. Do bear in mind, folks, that teenagers didn't even really exist as we know them culturally until the 50s. Mm-hmm. Including coffee bars, pop music, and teenage gangs. England was gripped by fears over juvenile delinquency. There were teddy boys everywhere, wearing Edwardian style clothing. Burgess stated that the novel's inspiration was. Now, this is sad and horrible. Burgess stated that the novel's inspiration was his first wife, Lynn's beating by a gang of drunk American servicemen stationed in England during World War II. She subsequently miscarried. In the investigation of free will, the book's target is ostensibly the concept of behaviourism pioneered by such figures as B.F. Skinner. But Burgess later stated that he wrote the book in three weeks. Right. I'm not saying that British thug teenagers wouldn't have beaten up his wife, Hmm. but American servicemen is completely different from juvenile delinquents. It really is. It feels like this book was, oh, you kids, your violence. I mean, this violent thing happened. It's not connected, but you could have done it. Hmm. 
And I don't want to make light of the gang violence that was there at the time, then and now. But it's notable that the only two teenagers in the entire film who aren't violent criminals are a pair of harlots. Now to us, two girls incredibly comfortable with their own sexuality. In the film, a weird imbalance between leery disapproval. Look at this boy, making love with two girls, <laughs> the very idea, morally repugnant. Don't you wish you could do this? You're right about the lack of comprehension about teenagers, though, because it's worth remembering that before the concept of the teenager mm. came about, the way it basically worked was you were a kid and then suddenly you were expected to take on adult responsibilities. And if yeah. you were rich, that happened somewhere around the age of 21, 22. And if you were poor, that happened somewhere around the age of 14, 15. I can guarantee, by the way, if a teenager sat and watched this film now, most gentle teenagers would be like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like, why is he behaving like that? Why do, do, do they all behave like that in this culture? I don't see one normal person. And a certain type of teenager would actually like Alex because he basically gets punched and then spits back in the face of, of his oppressors. He's the, the joker. He takes no shit. And he, he sort of slyly goes along with the plan, but always thinking of subterfuge. I mean, I, I don't like Alex, but I, I feel bad for him. He gets shat on from a great height. And for the most part, he doesn't even really seem to understand mm how he's getting shat on and used and kicked around from pillar to post. There are many interpretations of the term a clockwork orange. I believe Kubrick interpreted it as living on the outside, mechanical on the inside. If you get changed and behaviorally processed, mm. what you're doing isn't organic anymore. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, that's, that's what pure behaviorism is all about. You... I mean, Skinner invented the Skinner box, mm. wherein pigeons are trained to repeatedly peck a button to give themselves peanuts. It's you, you can, from that perspective, you never really know what's going on inside the organism that you are training to do this repetitive action. All you're interested in is the action. But if you look at the brouhaha regarding teenagers now, today, in 2019, teenagers are assertively saying to adults... Could we please have less guns? Could we please have less violence? Could we please have less racism? Could we please have less hate? Could gay people please be allowed to be legally married? With all the bells and whistles that hetero people get. Could women please have the right to choose what they do with their own bodies? Could men please stop abusing us in the workplace? Could trans people be considered people? And for fuck's sake, can we please do something about the environment before we all die? And the adults are responding, Shut up, you bunch of pampered pussies! When I was a teenager, we had something real to rebel against. Go back to school! So to that end, Clockwork Orange has aged like vinegar. That's not to say that there aren't shitlord teenagers. There are countless numbers out there, and many people listening will have had their lives made worse by them. But there's less Moloko Plus and ultraviolence than Burgess predicted. Though he was right about the mangling of the English language. The average teenager these days will now say, that show is yeet, it's all Gucci, that goat was orcs, cancel that straight fire, YOLO for Sholo, dab on those haters and potatoes. Sorry. <laughs> is that accurate? Kind of, not altogether, but yeah, kind of. And now we floss.
Burgess dismissed A Clockwork Orange as too didactic to be artistic. Didactic meaning intended to teach us a lesson. He claimed that the violent content of the novel nauseated him. In 85, Burgess published Flame Into Being, the life and work of D.H. Lawrence, and while discussing Lady Chatterley's lover in his biography, Burgess compared that novel's notoriety with A Clockwork Orange. We all suffer from the popular desire to make the known notorious. The book I am best known for... Uh, only known for, is a novel I am prepared to repudiate, written a quarter of a century ago. A jeu d'esprit knocked off for money in three weeks. Jeu d'esprit? I don't know. A light-hearted display of wit or cleverness, especially in literature. There are a lot of those in the 60s and 70s. Rich in irony and most satirical. It became known as the raw material for a film which seemed to glorify sex and violence. That's how he interpreted it. That's mm. clearly how a lot of people interpreted it. That Kubrick was being salacious with how he depicted this, mm. rather th- than being weirdly cold and distant. I got the essence of it as being not that he was glorifying sex and violence or sexual assault and violence, but that there were people who saw those things as glorious. Mm-hmm. The film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will pursue me until I die. I should not have written the book because of this danger of misinterpretation, and the same may be said of Lawrence and Lady Chatterley's lover. See, that is remarkably responsible for an author. It is. and it, I always is confer in... responsibility on authors for putting out dangerous shit. Like, because you don't know who's going to take that, twist it, and turn it into some means of hurting people in a whole new way. Exactly. And if you wash your hands of it, and we've, we've pulled up things like, um, to an extent, Fight Club, to an extent, Rick and Morty, things like that in the past. And a lot of people seem to think that it's like the creator's responsibility stops at the door. Yeah, you just but make it, you, you put it know. out there to be appraised, and then you go, well, it's not my, none of my business. You're a human. You know you're not creating this in a vacuum. You know what you're putting it out there into. Hmm. Take some responsibility for it. Well, either way, I actually think it was kind of a good idea for Kubrick to restrict the viewing of this, because it kind of, it's... A weird artifact now. It's it's out of time. Like mm-hmm. it never really had that chance to become something that people watched loads in England. In America, it was available. It, it meant that when I was a teenager, my teenage friends weren't watching it and they didn't know anything about it. So now, when you watch it, it is an artifact mm-hmm. from back then. So mm-hmm. starting from 1999, that was the case, and it feels more like just one of Kubrick's. Oeuvre, one of his films, rather than something that was of the age. Because yeah. they didn't make films in, in 1972 that were like that. They made films that were challenging. But this is fucking weird. Mm. It's, it's so weird as a film. It's very much got that quality about it of something that is is futuristic for the time that it's made. But you only, when you look back on it, only a relatively short period mm. of time later, and it looks ridiculously old-fashioned because of the perception of the future that it's... It's laying over. I don't interpret it as being at all sympathetic to teenagers. Mm. I, I, I feel like if, if Kubrick was told a bunch of teenagers watched their, your film, they weren't very impressed. He'd go, well, that's fucking teenagers for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go then. My, my interpretation... That's my supposition, at least. ...goes wildly off what Kubrick meant, so I'm not even going to oh, well, attempt... Well, that, that's the thing. If teenagers saw it and didn't get much out of it, rather than going, we interpret that you are saying we're being fucked around by the system. Mm. Like, if they didn't grasp that, he would dismiss them. Oh, okay. It feels Like I say, he was a man of extremes. Right. He had his gentle moments, for example, the lighting in Barry Lyndon. Uh, but that is an incredibly cold film as well. We will talk very briefly about Barry Lyndon. 
I bought it. I bought it on Blu-ray. I spent £17 acquiring the UK Blu-ray, which is very difficult to get hold of. I had never seen it before. We put aside an entire evening. I will say it is beautifully shot. The light is wonderfully captured. They went to great lengths to give it a soft, warm, honeyed, human glow. Interior, exterior. Ireland has never looked so magnificent. But in trying to feed upon it, I found myself starving to death. Michael Bay wrote a letter to projectionists, right? Dear projectionist, this movie is very important. Now, does in, he have this pompous style of speaking in American? In the past, Stanley Kubrick used to write to, to projectionists. There's a lovely letter been doing circulating recently from Stanley Kubrick saying, we spent all this time making Barry Lyndon, the costumes, the lighting, you know, the candlelight, we got lenses from NASA, we, you know, the set design, the mise-en-scene, all this stuff. Now it's in your hands. It's very important. Please check the focus is right. Please check the framing is right. If you get an, an LP to play in the middle of the interval, please only play side two because side one's got some repeated cues. Please bear in mind that they're the little dots and well, they're wrong on reel three and handing it all over, right? Michael Bay writes a letter to projectionist. It goes like this. Dear projectionist, you spent loads of money putting this equipment in. Turn it up, bro. Right. And you go, and with that, I give you my leave because that is the end point. You start with Stanley Kubrick writing to projectionists, asking them to be soft with the focus, and you end up with Michael Bay telling them to turn up to 11 because they spent so much money putting the stuff in. And you know what, Michael? When you get to the multiplexes, there ain't going to be any projectionists to read your letter because they've all lost their jobs due to the miracle of digital projection, which came about thanks to the miracle of 3D. Thank you. And I'm almost certainly misunderstanding Kubrick. And I'm sure every Kubrick fan will put me right. This is a film about fate and coincidence. But it all happens to this empty shell of a man. This dead-eyed slab who doesn't even seem to register an emotion when he's beating his children. It's, it's incredibly long and it's incredibly dull. There are sad events that occur in it. People who trust him, put their faith in him, end up disappointed, dead, lovelorn, cheated, destroyed. But then you realize while you're getting sad, oh, I've got so many other things and people to feel sad for. I am not going to waste any on this. Okay. Did you? I, I was monotonously bored by the whole thing. I found it ridiculously hard to engage with. Mm. And I, I think I didn't... Again, there's nobody morally upstanding in Barry Lyndon. There, no, there isn't. And, uh, but that's kind of the point. And I think what really kind of pissed me off was that title card at the end that says the thing about... Barry died on people. the way home to his home planet. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Barry's dead! <laughs> <laughs> that, that says, you know, these people all lived during the reign of George III or whatever and now they're now all they're gone equal. and they're all That's equal. That's it. No, they aren't. And I'm just sat there thinking, you took three hours to say that? Also, Just say that! They're not equal. All, all of the rich people have their lives recorded. All of the poor people don't. They're not equal. Mm. That's a bullshit thing to say. There is that too, yeah. But um, Poor people don't get painted and put on the walls of galleries, apart from um, Bruegel. Mm. And even then, he didn't name the fuckers. Yeah, but it's it's just it just seems like one of those films that's things happening, and there's such a no, it wasn't. A, a, things did not happen. No, no, no. Uh, he okay. fought Pat Roach at one things point. Things happening. I don't mean fisticuffs, Marky Dessard. I don't mean in the Marquee context to that you rules. mean like uh, 
things being significant and engaging events. Characterisation that a makes sequence. a person a different person scene to scene. When I say things happening, I mean like horse walks from A to B. Yep, that Somebody happened. moves cutlery. Cutlery confirmed. Um, there's, there is a scene in which somebody changes a jacket. Jacket you know, cannon. The, just, it's just stuff. <laughs> it's just stuff. Three hours of it. It, it could not engage with Barry Lyndon at all. I know, I know that loads of people love it and think it's wonderful. It's a classic show. You're obliged to but like I it. But I just, no. Again, as with Clockwork Orange, there's no moral centre, there's no stand-up guy in this. The character of his stepson disappointed me the most, Lord Bullingdon. Caned by this shithead from a young age, growing up to see the man who married his mother now fucking around behind her back, he's angered, decries his stepfather in public, gets strangled by him, goes away, comes back because his little brother died after falling from a horse under Barry's care, challenges him to a duel, And were this guy positioned as Laertes, righteously indignant and morally justified on behalf of a wronged loved one, of course I could get behind that and I would be willing him to fell Barry in this duel. I was anyway. But he's portrayed as a jelly-jawed, caramel-kidneyed, custard-coloured cad. A fool, a boy, a buffoon, who doesn't know how to fight, hasn't ever been in a duel. Obviously this is from the book, but Kubrick very specifically portrays him as a young idiot out of his depth. And there is, admittedly, a tense duel scene at the end where they're gearing up to fire their pistols at each other. The boys goes off by accident, Barry gets a free shot, fires it at the ground. He throws away his shot. It's the one thing he does in the whole story, mystifyingly, that's unselfish and benevolent. And this wretched boy takes his second shot, blows Barry's leg clean off. Not really, it had to be amputated, but figuratively, that. And the whole film ends with just Barry retreating after he's been told, if you fuck off back to Ireland, we'll give you money. The end. And we go to his wife, the Countess, writing the cheque and going, hmm. And I was like, are they going to characterise a woman in a Kubrick film? No, sorry, sorry, didn't happen. No internal life for her. Foolish of me to expect that. There wasn't time in the three hours. However, Clockwork Orange, I will be watching again. I'm probably going to get the Blu-ray of that because it is visually striking and extraordinary as a film. It made me feel sick many times. Unlike Mary Lyndon, which seemed to be an achingly slow musing on the pomp and circumstance of history, this is a sharp warning future shock against the dangers of total collapse of societal morality. It feels confused, but it is at least quick about it. But it does have Benny Hill sex. It does. That's a flipping amusing scene. Yes. I might see if I can track down the book, actually. The one that's got the last chapter. Speaking of sex, I might add that at the end, it says... Were we? It's... (laughs) I was. It says that... (laughs) Placed in a mental institution, Alex is offered a well-paying job if he agrees to side with the government. A round of tests reveals that his old violent impulses have returned, indicating that the hospital doctors have undone the effects of his conditioning. As photographers snap pictures, Alex daydreams of orgiastic violence and reflects, I was cured all right. That's in the book. In the film, he is lying on his back. A woman is straddling him. She's naked, apart from stockings. And she's having... And, and, and gloves. And she is riding him like a bronco uh, in front of a clapping cloud of gentry. 
She's having a whale of a time. That's not rape. That's not orgiastic violence. That's consensual sex. That's just imagining having sex in public. So arguably, at that point, he is cured. Yes, yes, he is. Was that what you meant, Stan? I don't think it was. But I think it would have been maybe a little depressing to have him on top choking the woman. Yes. But that would have indicated he wasn't the least bit cured. And then you would have had the, there's no hope for Alex, absolutely hammered home. Mm, yeah. Well, see, my position would be, considering my particular um, field of personal interest, there's no hope for Alex if you try to address this with pure behaviourism, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, side note, by the way, uh, the writer, the man in the wheelchair we mentioned earlier, is this crazy leftist who ends up getting arrested for trying to get Alex to commit suicide with music. Mm. And uh, they say he's going to jail and probably will be harmed and he's not allowed to write any of his subversive literature anymore. I believe if there's a self-insert character or uh, Kubrick inserting him for him, that's Anthony Burgess. Oh, okay. The man whose wife was horribly attacked. Yeah. You know? Mm. That's a weird statement to make. It is a very weird To put the writer of the book in the film and then have him carted off and beaten. Especially since it seems like... I mean, I could be over-interpreting this bit, but after his wife dies, he seems to have... He recruits um, Austin Powers to be his houseboy. Yeah, and I just... I I was like, what's the implication here? That he's bisexual and he's now decided that someone's going to come and help him with his... That's around the house just he can because sit and stare of at Kubrick's weirdly cold sexualization of everything in this film. Maybe. 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 I always interpreted him as just a male nurse or physical therapist who was strong enough to move this man around. But there's a weird South Parkish everybody's wrong. Like I said earlier, the right are trying behavioral therapy to make automatons out of people and then desperately trying to cover up their mistakes. And it seems like Kubrick's positioning the left as bleeding hearts sympathizing with the criminals, saying, look what you've done to this poor young man who was a rapist and a murderer. Again, everybody's fucked. No one's the voice of reason. The film seems to make no statement as to whether criminals are being treated too harshly or too softly. It's not a very helpful film. And if it's not going to make any confident political statements, if it's not trying to teach us anything, it doesn't fit in with the jeu d'esprit writing of the book. So this is, neither for the first nor last time, a fundamental clash between Kubrick and the writer of his source novel. Next week, our episode will be on Full Metal Jacket from 1987, and his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, from 1999. One of them we like, one of them we really don't like. And the week after that, we will be covering The Shining, when we'll be doing a close comparative between the book and Kubrick's film, both of which are a bit of a mixed bag for us, but both of which we appreciate a lot more now that we've done this project. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, 
Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisham. I'm going to show you some slides, and you're going to tell me what you think about them. Oh, jolly good. Now then, each of these slides needs a reply from one of the people in the picture. You tell me what you think the person would say. All right. Isn't the plumage beautiful? Cabbages, knickers. Uh, it's not got a, a beak. Good. <laughs> The boy you always quarrelled with is seriously ill. And I'll smash your face for you, Yarblockos. Good. <laughs> you sold me a crummy watch. I want my money back. You know what you can do with that watch? Stick it up your ass. Good. <laughs> you can do whatever you like with these. Eggy wakes. I would like to smash them and pick them all up and throw out fucking hell that's probably the most human Malcolm McDowell is in the entire movie especially that last bit of oh fucking hell he drops character he stops speaking in this ridiculously affected tongue the only tiny indicator that he might be getting a little bit too old for this shit so yeah, uh, Clockwork Orange is a recommended one if you've got a, a strong constitution and, like I said, it is weird as fuck. Mm. Uh, and if you can work out more about it, and plenty of scholars I'm sure will have, mm. please let us know. It's actually a bit of a minefield trying to find what Stanley Kubrick meant about something online. Yeah. There are a lot of forums, they're very aggressive. <laughs> why am I not surprised? Somebody said, why is the shining aspect ratio... Uh, all wrong. And the next thing was, oh, for fuck's sake, this again! Look, you bloody child! <laughs> I was like, oh, for God's sake. Steady on. Sorry I asked a question about Stanley Kubrick and his fucking aspect ratios. Welcome to the internet, sweetheart. Um, and cinephiles who are a little bit possessive yeah, of their genius. Just a touch. I trust all of you folks listening not to be like that. I don't expect to get that kind of response. Although our YouTube channel's still getting all kinds of shitty comments. Honestly, I feel like I'm a little afraid of success on YouTube. Like Stanley himself, I'm kind of reclusive. He never responded to either criticism or to praise. I can completely understand that. That's a very dignified way for a creator to live. I do wonder how he would live now. I suppose internet free. So to finish on Clockwork Orange, I think its greatest strength is Malcolm McDowell's Alex. Without that fixed, strong point, we would not be able to engage with this world and with this story. It's too much of an abstraction. And Alex is somewhat beguiling because, as we said earlier, he's not angry or hateful. To that end, he's less frightening than if this movie had been about angry, hateful young men. To me, at least. Having absolutely no moral code is ever so slightly better than having a completely broken, skewed, backwards moral code and hurting people whilst claiming that you're right and knowing, not even all that deep down, that you're very wrong. But being terrified to admit that because you can't go back. 
we have historical evidence to suggest this is a lot more dangerous to our civilization because it can be very persuasive. The violence itself is treated contemptuously, but Stanley Kubrick regards sex in a strange way which we will touch on later, which is why the rape scenes are particularly uncomfortable because the audience is left uncertain as to how they're supposed to feel. That makes them uncomfortable. That's the abiding issue with this film. So when people asked, should I see Clockwork Orange? The apparently casual way rape is handled was what I said they had to steal themselves for. Hence the incompatibility of that final shot with those in the audience for whom sexual intimacy is very important. Singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling! I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart, and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain, just singing, singing in the rain. Dance. Dancing in the rain I'm happy again I'm singing and dancing in the rain 